Well, I'm glad you're here for the second week of this series called Free of Me. And the reason I'm glad is because I think one of the most common and serious problems that we suffer with is what's going to be the topic of this series. And it's the fact that you and I tend to live really self-focused lives. And self-focused is kind of a nice way to say it. The other words are self-absorbed, self-obsessed. Oh, obsessed, that's a really strong word for it, right? But, but I think that's why some of you, you know, you have phones that are filled with pictures of you. You, know, you get your selfies, you know, you take a lot of. And in fact, some of you, I'd guess, if I got your phone and was up here looking through it, the ratio of selfies to pictures of not you is unfortunate, and you would be embarrassed by it. Um, one thing I've been noticing, just, I don't know why I started noticing this, um, but guys and girls tend to take selfies differently. Okay, um, when you look on Facebook, the, the girl method is pretty, there's only kind of one major female way to take selfies, it's the duck face, okay, and it's, all, and it's always like, it's never straight on though, it's always duck face, so like the camera's up here, you know, I, don't, I think that's because the duck face slims the cheeks, and up here, it minimizes any double chinage that will be going on, because you're looking up and not like, there, here, you know, those. Um, but guys have a little bit more variety to their selfie taking, which I think probably says the guys are a little more self-focused, maybe. Um, one that you see all the time is the shirtless guy selfie. And it's like the, and they always try to look, stand like, you know, they're just happen to be caught with their shirt off, you know. And, but really, they're like straining every single muscle in their body so that every ab that they possibly have is, is popping out. And their arms are stiff as a board, and it's usually in a bathroom mirror, so you get in the reverse of them. So that's one that guys do. The other one I see a lot from guys is the serious face. You know, because we can't smile on photos, heaven forbid, most of the time. But it's not just the serious face. The eyes are always slightly squinted and one eyebrow slightly raised. <laughs> Sometimes, guys, it looks inquisitive and thoughtful. Sometimes saying, I'm sensitive because I care. I'm thinking about the, the bigger issues of life, you know, staring off to the side. Sometimes it gets a little bit too much and the guys look a little confused, like, you know, what's going on? <laughs> um, and then the other one that guys do is just the outright goofy face, the, like, over the top, not a smile, but like the... You know, something like that, because it's like, oh, who doesn't love a guy who makes you laugh? And so it's weird how different, you know, people take selfies differently, but you see them all the time on Facebook. In fact, you're going to go home this week, and you're going to start noticing it, and you're going to start noticing every time you take a selfie with something else in the background. It's like, why didn't you take a picture of it? Why did you have to be going, you know, in the, back, in the foreground of your picture? I don't know. But... When we think self-focused, we tend to think something like that. Okay, well, yeah, of course that's self-focused because you're only taking pictures of yourself. That's prideful. Of course that is. But let me tell you something else that, that might reveal that you have a self-focused nature. The opposite. If you have only pictures that you, are, that you are not in at all, that also might tell me that you might have a little bit of a self-focused nature because some people hate having their picture taken. Because they feel unattractive, they don't want a record, their friends might have a record or a picture hanging on any wall of their face because, oh, it makes, I just hate the way I look and I don't want anybody to notice how I look. And so anytime the camera comes out, you just like run for the other room, hoping that people will just forget that you were ever there, okay? But here's what usually happens, it's like, when, <coughs> excuse me. When you, the camera comes out, rather than you thinking of, oh, what a cool moment. Oh, what a great mo way to remember this holiday or celebrate this occasion, this birthday, this anniversary, this whatever. The first thing you think of when the camera comes out is, I can't be in it. Not me. I have to escape. It's, it's a weird thing how this self-focused mindset can not only show up in your life in a very prideful 
aspect, but also on the opposite end of the spectrum as well, the low self-esteem kind of things. And we looked at that last week. And so what I want to look at through this series is how we can develop biblical humility. A lot of times we think of that, oh, I don't want to be in any pictures, oh, I'm not attractive, oh, I'm untalented, oh, I'm worthless. We think that that's humility. That's not humility, because that can still be very self-focused. True biblical humility is simply an outward-focused perspective that considers other people before yourself. So that when you look at situations, it's not that you think you're awful or you're dumbing yourself down or whatever, putting yourself down. When you look at the world and things that are going on, you just consider other people's needs before your own. That is a truly humble perspective when you attack or attack, yeah, attack the world. No, when you go out into the world. And so that's what we want to be. We don't want to be people who are primarily inward focused. But the unfortunate reality is, for most of us, that's kind of the natural stance that we take. We tend to look at the world through, how does this affect me? How is this going to hinder what I wanted to happen today? How is this going to hinder my plans and what I wanted to do? That's kind of the natural thing that we do. We look at life through how it affects ourselves. How is it going to bother or affect me? And so what I want to do today, we're going to look at why. Why do we tend to get drawn inward like that? What is it in us that makes us turn our focus totally into the, not, not seeing the world around us, not seeing all the people and the relationships, but what is it that makes our gaze so small that we can't get outside of our own little bubble? And I want to talk about how painful it is and how damaging it is because it is painful and it is damaging. It is not a great way to live. It is hindering for your peace, your joy. It will damage your relationships and your interactions with the world. Interactions. That was a better word than attack. That's what I meant to say. It's better. It will hurt you, though, when you go out into the world and everything you think about has to go through the perspective of how does it affect you. And, you know, I've, I've seen this in my life and it pops up in a lot of different ways. You know, for instance, um, I, I struggle with anxiety a little bit, but I've started to realize that a lot of my anxiety comes from being self-focused, wondering how is it going to affect me? How is this going to bother my life? And mostly that's a lot of, of how I start to get my little internal freakouts is because I can't get my mind off of poor little old me. Another thing that I came to a realization kind of in the last year was, because um, let me say it this way, when we had Nora, baby number three, things went nuts in our house. Like, you know, I had a friend tell me things fall apart when you have the third one. And he thought, man, maybe that was just you. No, it's just, I think it's not about that third one. It's just, it's like, you know, I can juggle two balls, but three I just can't handle it, right? <laughs> and, and so we have the baby, and babies just complicate things. And now there's a whole new person adding stinky smells to your house and noise and all that stuff. And there's nap times you got to consider and, and all that stuff. And so it just started getting a little bit more hectic and a little bit more crazy. And so as last year went on, I found myself getting so frustrated and almost just angry at my boys. Almost any day that I spent any amount of time with them, I would just be so fed up. And they were like, why are they being so crazy? Why are they being so loud? Why can't they just, you know, listen? Why can't they just, you know, be quiet during her nap times? And why can't they? And so if I had the boys for most of the day, by the time Abby would get home from work or something, it's like, I'm done. I can't take it anymore. You know, that's when you're more prone to say those things that parents shouldn't say. It's like, I love them, but, you know, whatever the, that comes after the but, it's like, I love my kids, but, you know. So, you know, you get so frustrated. And, and then I started to think, why is, it, why is this happening, you know? 
Yes, the baby's in the mix, but why is it I can't handle a day with my own kids? Why am I getting so angry and so frustrated? Because, you know, when I looked at, like, what kind of dad I want to be, I didn't want to be the rage monster dad. Like, I didn't want to be the dad who's always red-faced and screaming, sit down, no, nobody hurt. I didn't want to be that kind of dad. I, I didn't have that kind of dad growing up. I had friends who had that kind of dad, and I was always scared of that kind of dad, and I didn't want to be that kind of a dad. And so I thought, what is, what's really going on here? And I'll tell you what I figured out. My kids weren't being any crazier than they normally were. They weren't being any louder than what they normally were. Um, it was just kind of the nature that, one, we had a baby, and it was just more complicated than it used to be. But ultimately what I realized is that I love peace and I love quiet. Two things my kids are not. My boys are not. And two things they may never be. And I was getting mad because they were stealing that from me. It wasn't, and it, it just, again, they weren't being bad. And I started to realize, it's not them. I'm the problem because I'm looking through every single day through how does this affect me? What do I want out of the day? And maybe having three kids and hoping your day is peaceful and quiet, maybe that's an unrealistic expectation, you moron. Like, I get, it's, it's weird. But, but once I got that in my head and I could just kind of take a step back and get out of my own little world, I'm going to tell you, that the last several months have been totally different. I have enjoyed my kids more than I have in a long time because I was the problem. And I didn't think I was the problem. And that's what this will do for you. That's what unlocking this realization that you're self-focused and owning up to it and trying to break free of it by the power of God. It can change your life in places you never even knew that it could change your life. So let's get, get into why we tend to turn inward. Why is it that most of us have a hard time breaking free of ourselves? And there's just something that most of us are on. It's a quest for meaning. We are all on a quest for meaning. And if that sounds a little bit too much like therapy to you, I understand. I get a little skeptical when, when people say things like this to me. Like, oh, you know, meaning. And when the word self-esteem get tossed around a lot, I, I, can, I can get a little like, oh, that sounds a little too, you know, eh, wishy-washy. I don't know what the word is, but I don't always hone in on things like this, but stick with me if this makes you sound skeptical, if you think, I don't think I'm on a quest for meaning or self-worth, but the reality is I think that we are. We all want to know that we matter. We all want to know that we have a place in life, that we're important. We all want to know that we have a desire to, or we all have this desire to have some level of worth either in our relationships or just to know that we have a place in the world that we can contribute. And when we succeed in our quest for value, when we succeed in thinking, look at me, I am important, I do have value, that's when you tend to get pride. When you fail on your quest for meaning, that's when you tend to get the low self-esteem. Oh, I can't do anything, oh, I'm ugly, oh, I'm worthless, no one loves me, I don't have anything to contribute to the world. And so this quest for meaning is kind of what contributes to either the pride or the low self-esteem. Either you succeed at your quest or you fail at your quest. And so what we're going to do today, and for the next three weeks actually, we're only going to be in one passage. We're going to come back to the same passage three weeks in a row because it will unlock this topic. And so we're going to be in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, if you want to grab a Bible, go ahead go for it. Uh, we'll be on page 953 in the Pew Bibles if you want to use one of those. If you brought your own Bible, I have no idea what page you're on. Good luck on your quest to find 1 Corinthians. And, but what's going on here is Paul, he is talking to a church about this issue of pride. They are really dealing with pride. And, and so as he starts to talk to them about this, he will 
unlock for us these secrets. They're not even really secrets. It's plainly stated. He will unlock for us the realization that we are self-focused, but also the solution to it. And I'm just going to give you a spoiler alert. Today we're not going to get into the solution. I told you last week that this series was going to kind of be like a TV season. you got to kind of watch the whole thing to follow the plot. That's kind of how today is going to be. And so if you missed last week, I would encourage you to go back and watch it online or listen to it online. Loemicc.com. Uh, you can watch any or listen to any of our sermons anytime. And so if you miss next week or something, I would just encourage you to try to watch all four editions of this sermon series because they build one upon another. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we'll start in verse 21, um, the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to a church. Because the way the Apostle Paul operated was he traveled all across the ancient Roman world planting churches. And he'd plant a church, and he'd get it going, and he'd get it stable, and he'd move along and plant another church. But then, while he was at other churches, he would often write letters back to the churches that he had already planted to offer some correction, some teaching, just to help them work through the issues that they were going on. And so, what we have here is the first letter that we have in our possession that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, Greece. Corinth, Greece, it is a real place. I have been to this ancient Roman city. I've stood on the ruins of this city. It, so sometimes I think when we read um, about somebody writing a letter to Corinth or Thessalonica or any of these places that we've never really visited, we might as well be saying that, you know, oh, Paul visited Wonderland or Neverland or Disneyland. None of it really matters, you know. But, but these are real places that had real people living in them. They were a real church, just like we are a real church. And Paul is writing to them to address this issue of pride because Paul was wasn't the only guy to come and teach at the church in Corinth. There were other Christian teachers who were going around for the purpose of building up the church and teaching people. It's just like every now and then we have a guest speaker on a Sunday come in and, and try to help build up our church. Okay, They had a bunch of speakers come through. So Paul was one. They had another guy named Apollos, which is a cool name. Makes me think of uh, going into space. Uh, thanks, Apollo 13. And then um, you had uh, so Cephas was, is another one. Cephas is another name for Peter. Which, if you read the four Gospels, the four Jesus-centered biographies that we have, uh, Peter was Jesus' right-hand man. So he was a solid guy to teach and build up a church. He was the one person who spent maybe more time with Jesus than anybody, okay? And so you have these three guys who, that we know of that came through, and they taught in the Corinthian church for the good of the church. But what they had started to do was they had kind of acted like these three teachers were not on the same side. They had acted like these were three competing Theologies, th three competing doctrines, three competing teachings. And so they would pick their favorite teacher and say, I'm on this team. My team's better than your team. I'm not going to listen to anything those other guys taught. I, Paul's my guy. Or Apollos, he's the guy I want to listen to. Or Peter, no, he's my favorite teacher. And so I'm on team Peter. I'm on team Apollos. I'm on team Paul. And so they were kind of like dividing and fighting over whose teacher was better. It's so silly because it just makes me think of, and I know some of you have done this. This is probably much more of a guy thing than a girl thing. But how many of you, when you were in first grade or kindergarten, uttered the phrase, my dad can beat up your dad? <laughs> oh, you liar. Some of you did, okay? But here's the thing. 
like, the, the, this, here's what's weird. Like, was anybody's dad? Like, were you, I didn't know your dads were mortal enemies. Like, I didn't know your dad was sitting there thinking about how the other dads he was going to conquer and defeat, right? They didn't care. Okay, all your dads were good for, like, they just wanted all this, the kids in the community to be healthy. And the kids on the playground, they want to feel better about themselves. They want to feel like they've got the toughest, strongest dad. they got the best genes in their blood system. And so we make a fight where no fight exists. We pick teams where teams don't even need to exist. And that's what they were doing. And Paul is addressing that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So let's start in verse 21. Here's what he says. Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. He's saying, you have these three awesome guys who came and taught you. Like, they taught you for the betterment of the church. They taught to build you up for the good of your spiritual growth. They taught so that you could be the people that Jesus created you to be. And you're missing out. All these guys are yours. All the teaching was yours. All of it was for your blessing. And you're missing it because you're turning it into some prideful little my dad can beat up your dad. My teacher's better than your teacher contest. He goes on. This is how one should regard us, saying... Here's how you should really look at us who are teachers. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. And he's saying human judgment isn't accurate all the time. Human judgment is flawed. We think we see everything. We think we know everything. But human judgment is not always accurate. And even if you evaluate yourself and you say, I think I'm doing pretty good. I think I'm pretty amazing. Or if you evaluate yourself and you say, I'm talentless. I have nothing to offer. Just because you've made a decision about yourself doesn't mean that decision is right. Doesn't mean that judgment is right. And so he wants to kind of point out that the only person who is really adequate to judge and rate people, who's better, who's worse, I'm good, I'm bad, the only person capable of making that decision is Christ himself. And if you, that middle part was a little fuzzy for you. Don't worry, we're going to start diving into that and picking it apart next week. Verse 6 in chapter 4, he says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up. Say puffed up. Okay, hang on to that. That's what we're going to camp out in just a moment. That none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. By the way, that's what pride does. It's always me against you. Pride isn't, can't be for anybody else. It's always got to be me against you. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Saying basically that last line is, Everything in your life God gave you. Yeah, you got a good job, but who gave you the talent to get the job? Who gave you the smarts to get the degree to get the job? God gave you all that stuff. Everything you have in your possession is God's. So why do you brag as if it's your own? Now, the place I want to camp out, though, is puffed up. Because that's a weird way 
to talk about pride. Now, it makes sense now. That's a euphemism that we say all the time. Always oh, get a big head or something like that, you know. But that wasn't something that was incredibly common 2,000 years ago. Um, this wasn't the normal way to talk about pride. In the original Greek, the, the, the Bible was written in puffed up. That's one word, one little Greek word. And, and it's not the normal word for arrogance and pride. And so when Paul says it, it's really kind of a head-scratcher at first to say, why would he say puffed up? Why would he use this particular word? But, man, the fact that he used that word tells us a whole bunch about this quest for meaning and why we can't be anything more than self-focused, self-obsessed people most of the time. Because the word literally means swollen, overinflated, distended, bloated, Okay, puffed up is like the nice way to say it. When I say puffed up, I think of like when I, I uh, buy a box of sugary cereal and it's like made of puffed wheat, you know, or something like that. Like puffed, oh, you know, I think of the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man. Like marshmallows are good. Puffed up sounds nice, okay, but bloated, distended, something that's bigger than it should be in an unhealthy way, swollen. That's the word used here. If you've ever had an accident or an injury that made part of your face swollen or a hand swollen, and you know how weird and, and debilitating that can be. I had, I don't know how many times this has happened in my few years as a dad, but kids, they're always the right height to jump and like headbutt you in the face and in the nose. And my lip, you know, you get your lip swelled up, and even if it's just like a little bit, it's so distracting, and you're trying to talk, and half your lip is so big, and you sound funny, and you sound silly, okay? It's just a weird thing. So this word is not a good word. It's a nasty, painful word here. And what it tells us, or at least the fact that he uses this word, it tells us of our tendency to become self-absorbed in our craving for meaning. Because the word means you're trying to make yourself bigger, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not happy where I am. I want to scoop in all the glory, all the acclaim, all the credit that I can into my life to make myself appear bigger, appear bolder, appear greater around than, than the people around me. Because ultimately, again, we fear ending up with meaningless lives. We fear ending up as worthless, talentless, unattractive, mediocre human beings who are insignificant and meaningless. We all want value. We all want to know that we matter compared to other people. I mean, good grief, I feel like my entire junior high and high school existence was one giant quest for meaning. I just wanted to be liked. I wanted to be cool. I didn't want to be somebody that nobody uh, liked or hated. I didn't want to be seen as somebody who didn't have anything to offer. Uh, I've said this before, but because I wanted to be liked so much, because I wanted people, uh, I, I was gleaning my value from whether or not people liked me, what I did in high school was I became kind of a chameleon. I would be the person I needed to be in any environment to be liked, okay? If I needed to be funny, I would tell jokes. If I needed to be mean and make fun of other people, by golly, I had no problem doing that because it wasn't about the other people who I was hurting. It was about me being liked. It was about me getting some credit from my friends and some laughter from my friends. That's what made me feel bigger and better about myself, okay? We all want to know that we matter. And that quest for meaning, that quest for for what importance, whatever you want to call it, that can lead us to do some very despicable and shady things. And that fear that we're going to end up meaningless makes us desperate. And I think that's why the, the self-focused life, it always ends up being really busy. You might not say it this way, but you end up being very, like, you're always working around trying to latch onto anything that'll make you feel better. Any, any Facebook post that is braggy about you, you can send it out there. Any picture of, man, I look good in that one. I'll put that one on Facebook, but I'm not going to put that picture that someone took of me when I was in mid-sneeze. 
You know, like, like, like we, we, we're looking for anything good that we can send out to try to get credit, you know. Or, or how about you put on Facebook, like, this is an okay photo of me. Because what you really want is people to go, no, girl, you're beautiful. Don't you say that about yourself. You are so gorgeous, you know, that, that fishing kind of a thing. You know, we, we, we are always running around scurrying, trying to get things in our life that will make us feel better. And we will grab onto anything, no matter how ludicrous, if it makes us feel better about ourselves, even if it's something as silly as, my teacher's better than your teacher. And so we grab onto the most ridiculous stuff, like good looks, um, Baseball trophies, all kinds of trophies. We want athletic ability, college degrees, cooking skills. My kids, athletic ability. My kids, grades in school. Uh, I always wondered how, I thought it was weird. Even as a kid, those, my kid's an honor student at whatever school, you know. I always thought that was weird. They, and, then they, and then somebody overdid it in the opposite direction. It's like, my kid can beat up your honor student. You ever seen those, right? Like, I was like, okay, not, not exactly what I I think you should go for, but I, I thought it was weird, though, that it's like, my kid's an honor student. <laughs> like, that's just a parent thing, you know, that makes me feel better to put that bumper sticker on my car. It's amazing how even our kids, we will use them to make ourselves feel better. It's so strange. It's so strange. And most of the things that we clang onto, latch onto, they don't have any lasting worth. They don't have any lasting meaning. The credit that they give you is so momentary and so small that you are stuck moving on from that thing to the next thing. That's why um, you have guys who are still telling that story of that awesome catch they made in high school, even though that was 30 years ago. Because in that moment, they felt like the king of the world. They, were, they made everybody love them for a day. And then it was gone. That importance, that feeling they thought, this is what I've been waiting my whole life for. It lasted, and then it was gone. And it, because that moment didn't last, they're, they're stuck telling the story over and over and over again about that awesome catch in that moment because they're desperate to wring any ounce of glory and credit out of that moment that has long since passed. And we do it in so many different ways. We're just trying to squeeze importance and glory out of stuff so that we can feel better about ourselves. And I think that's why we end up turning inward so often. And so the fear of meaninglessness that starts us on this quest for purpose and importance, that's why we tend to live hyper-focused lives. That's why we end up convinced that we're awesome. We're convinced that we're worthless. We, we are trying to just find ourselves have a, to have a place in this world. And let me just tell you, this quest for meaning, it is a prison. It is incarceration for you. It is you being stuck in this tiny little world that can't see past the tip of your nose. And I can't imagine how many places this affects my life that I don't even see it. Every day I'm discovering more ways that this self-focused perspective hinders my life. I've always known that I tended to be a selfish person. That's one of my, pride is one of my biggest stumbling block sins in my life. And every day I am discovering more ways that it is hurting me and hurting those around me and keeping me from living the life Christ wants for me because I can't get over myself. One of the um, best examples of how you're never going to be able to scrape enough stuff, scurry enough stuff into your life to be satisfied. Um, I found a quote from Madonna in Vogue, because you know I love my Vogue, right? Um, and, and, but here's what, but, okay, listen, though, listen to what she says, okay? Madonna, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. 
that is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel I am still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. It's fleeting. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. Now, I don't lift her up to you as a great spiritual example or a leader, but I lift that up to you as as the fact that Madonna has more fame, more money than probably all of us in this room put together. She has more people going, yay, you're awesome, you're so great than any of us ever will, and it's still not enough. She still, every day, is trying to find that meaning. Every project, every song, every album is that quest to feel important, to feel better, to feel that she matters. And no matter how much you get, it will never, ever be enough. It is a worthless pursuit, and again, it is prison. But there's a way, and there is freedom. But like I warned you up front, I don't got time to get into that much today. I needed to convince you that there is this thing inside of you that makes you want to feel important, that makes you want to rate yourself compared to other people. And so what we're going to do next week is start to get into the solution of that. But I've, and we're going to do that through that same passage that we looked at earlier, because just as Paul kind of explains this puffed up idea, this idea that we're trying to build ourselves up, trying to get ourselves to mean more, have some sort of level of greater significance, he also starts to break down, one, why that is worthless, and what the real solution is that will bring you peace in your pursuit of self-worth, self-judgment, that will help you find joy, everlasting joy that doesn't keep you trapped in this tiny little rat race of feeling good about yourself. And again, keeps you trapped in a tiny little prison cell that stops at the tip of your nose because you can't see past yourself. So I would encourage you, do not miss next week, or if you can't be here, try to watch it online because next week and the week after, we are going to start filling in the solution to being self-focused. We're going to start putting the pieces together so that we can see the amazing solution that Jesus has for us in the amazing gospel story of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that this doesn't go anywhere, this, this self-focused, self-centered mentality. And I hope that today as we dove into your word and we, we looked at just such a small part of it, one little word puffed up, and we kind of discovered maybe the fact that we are selfish, self-focused people. I pray that that wouldn't be something that discourages us to the point where we don't even want to listen to the next week because freedom is in the gospel. Freedom is in the words that Paul has written for us as he focuses us not on ourselves but on you. And so I pray, Father, that all of us in this room would begin to discover a life beyond these tiny little walls that we have lived in. That we can finally stop thinking, dwelling, obsessing about how we look, how we rate, what other people think of us, how we, how we smell, all kinds of crazy things that we get hung up on when our life is just about us. But we can start to Look at the world primarily through an outward-focused perspective, a truly biblical, hu- biblically humble perspective of others first. And we can be free to enjoy and see and help and participate in the world around us rather than just getting caught up in, what about me? We want to live big lives. You made us to live big lives, not tiny, little, insignificant lives. And the irony is that in our quest to try to be significant, We're limiting ourselves to insignificance because we're limiting ourselves to just us. 
when the real purpose, the real meaning, the real life that matters is beyond ourselves. So help us, Father, to have a transformed sight. Start doing work in us this week. Prepare our hearts over the next six and seven days to dive into this passage again to start to discover how we can have our perspectives change, how we can start to find peace in this desire to have worth. Thank you again for Christ and all that he offers and for the balance and the peace and the joy that comes even as we're a mess, even as we can't look past ourselves. Thank you for being so selfless and so great. We pray all this in Jesus' good and holy name. Amen.